Many people have a cardboard box sitting up on the wardrobe, a wooden chest on the floor, or an old tin tucked safely away filled with knickknacks, newspaper clippings, magazines, or photos of a time gone by. Bring down the box, open the tin, and rifle through the contents. I'm Jessica Barrett, and you're listening to The Dusty Box. Join me as we sweep away the cobwebs, blow away the dust, and uncover the stories of the past. This story contains references to suicide. If you are struggling and need to talk to someone, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. On Christmas Eve in 1825, in Yeldon in the county of Bedfordshire, Thomas and Rachel Walker welcomed the birth of their son, Charles. He was christened according to their Protestant faith, with his birth later registered at Dr Williamson's Library in London. His parents both likely benefited from the Harper Trust, which was established in 1566 by William Harper to support the education of poor children at Bedford Grammar School. Both Thomas and Rachel were literate. When he reached school age, they enrolled Charles to begin his studies. By age 15 in 1841, Charles was one of two baker's apprentices living with baker Favel Barringer on St Cuthbert Street in Bedford. He was said to have worked for Favel for three years before becoming a soldier. Throwing doubt on his supposed military career, there were questions as to how he was able to receive a discharge. Charles eventually returned to Bedford and in the first quarter of 1846, he married a local woman, Ellen Waller. At the time of their marriage, she was pregnant. She gave birth to their son, Charles Maynard Walker, on the 23rd of March, 1846. The family lived together on Priory Street in Bedford. Charles earned his living as a hawker, which took him away from home for months at a time. He also enjoyed writing and specifically wrote poems, having published a small collection of his work about moral and religious subjects. The couple were known to have possessed some valuable property. How they managed to afford it became the subject of gossip. Charles claimed that he received an inheritance from a relative. His explanation did nothing to quell the rumours. On the 22nd of June 1850, in an effort to stop the talk, he placed an advertisement in the Bedford Times, offering a reward for information and threatening to prosecute anyone spreading slanderous reports affecting his character. As it sometimes turns out, where there is smoke, there is fire. On the 10th of July, 1849, Charles Wells was sentenced to 10 years transportation for multiple burglaries carried out in the villages of Frogmore, Ayat St Peter and Hunsdon in Hertfordshire. He committed them accompanied by a man named Charlie Watford, whom he had met at a lodging house. Wells was apologetic and expressed remorse for what he had done. He provided Inspector Robert Dunn with a description of Watford, who dutifully wrote it down. The police continued investigating without much luck until the 18th of September, 1850. In the evening on that day, Inspector Dunn was walking through Hartham when he noticed a man matching Wells's description. He followed him to the railway station, then into the Albion pub. 
Convinced he had the right man, he arrested him and searched him. He found a screwdriver, a partially used candle, a box of matches, a map of Huntingdonshire, and a hawker's license in the name of Charles Walker. Positive identification was paramount. Several days later, Inspector Dunn took Charles to the hulks at Woolwich, where Wells was being held. In a room in the dockyard, with seven other people in attendance, he asked Wells if there was anyone in his presence whom he recognised. Wells pointed at Charles. Charles was held in the Hartford County Jail while he awaited trial. By all appearances, he was tranquil and resigned to his fate. His visible behaviour disguised his internal desperation to escape the situation he was in. At 1.45am on the 19th of January 1851, Officer Henry Hollingdale was on night duty at the jail and was doing his rounds. He heard a noise in the ward where prisoners awaiting trial were held. He inspected the area but saw nothing of concern. Rather than discount it, he alerted the jail's governor, Samuel Hatchard, and other officers who got out of bed to investigate. They examined the exterior of each door carefully and noticed that at Charles's, the trap through which they passed food was not closed properly. They unlocked the cell and entered to find Charles fully dressed and standing by the door. He was holding a handmade skeleton key constructed out of a piece of old iron wire wrapped with a cotton cravat to increase its bulk. Reports indicated that it was quite skillfully made. The implement was fashioned with great dexterity and was an admirable imitation of the key of the cells at which the prisoner could only furtively have glanced on some occasion when visited by the officers of the jail. With the use of a string, Charles had been holding the trap open and reaching his hand through it in an attempt to unlock the door using his skeleton key. The noise Hollingdale heard was assumed to have been the trap accidentally slamming heavily. The officers searched his cell and also found a rope that Charles had constructed using stockings, a towel and a cravat. While his attempt at escape was frustrated, the reporter noted that had he succeeded, he likely would have faced other difficulties. As punishment and to prevent another occurrence, Charles was stripped and moved to a different cell. On the 26th of February 1851, Charles appeared at the Hartford Lent Assizes charged with stealing various items from the home of Reverend Edward Prodgers at Ayat St. Peter. Reverend Prodgers recalled the night of the 20th of April 1849. He went to bed at 11pm and, as was his habit, he ensured that the drawing room door was locked on the outside and the external door fastened. He was awoken at 7am with the news that someone had broken in. The drawing room was in disarray and his French clock, a concertina box, a silver inkstand, a gold pen holder and various coins and medals were gone. Charles Wells, who had previously pleaded guilty to a similar charge, gave evidence against Charles. He first met him at a lodging house on the 20th of April 1849. After talking for a while, they went for a walk. Wells confided in Charles that he had no money and was determined to get some. Charles was in the same predicament. He showed Wells some diamond rings 
and after first lying about how he got them, he admitted that they were stolen. He was planning other burglaries and had spotted a house that he was going to break into that night. He gave Wells the opportunity to join him and Wells accepted. They arrived at Reverend Proger's house at about midnight and waited until one of the two candles they could see was extinguished. They broke open the grating, Charles entered on his own and he let Wells in through the drawing room window. They took all the items that Reverend Prodgers had previously listed as stolen. Wells and Charles locked the door on the inside, and when they were some distance away from the property, they broke open the concertina box. They tried smashing open the clock to take the inner workings, but were unable to. They dumped it in a field and walked to Welwyn, Hartford, and then Ware. Days later, they committed another robbery. Wells was in company with Charles for about 10 days. He eventually pledged the concertina box and sold the silver inkstand, as well as other items, to Barnett Isaacs of the Blue Anchor on Petticoat Lane in London's East. The medals stolen from Reverend Prodgers were particularly identifiable, with one of them showing an image of a Chinese junk ship. Mary Ann Viner was a servant at the Coachmaker's Arms in Hartford, she remembered Inspector Dunn coming in and telling him that Charles had shown her a diamond ring as well as the medals on the 21st of April 1849, the day after the robbery. She asked if she could have one, but he threw them away into a field. When shown the medals in court, she thought they were the same ones. Charles Inch worked for the man who owned the field near the coachmaker's arms. On the 26th of April 1849, he was walking through it when he came across four medals, including one with the image of a Chinese junk ship on it. He gave them to his employer, who gave them back to him the next day. Mr Inch gave them to his mother, but one was accidentally lost. John Connor was a lodger at the Coachmaker's Arms in April 1849 and saw Charles and Wells together. Charles showed him the medals and then a diamond ring asking if he would like to buy it. His reason for selling was that they were short of money. John refused. When he was shown the medals in court, he recognised the one with the image of a Chinese junk ship on it. George Hanscombe owned a lodging house at Bishop Stortford and Charles Miller was a lodger there. Both men testified to seeing Charles and Wells together at the lodging house on the 22nd of April, 1849. Mr Hawkins represented Charles. He dismissed Wells's evidence as unreliable. He argued that the witnesses proved that Charles and Wells were in each other's company after the burglary, but there was no evidence to show they were in each other's company before. He also touched upon the medals and questioned whether a thief would be openly exhibiting the proceeds of a robbery on the morning after its commission. He called witnesses from Bedford who testified as to Charles's character. John Denyer was a grocer who had known Charles for about six years. He lived nearby and considered his character and conduct to be perfectly straightforward. Jane Whitehead was a baker and she knew that Charles worked as a hawker. She considered him respectable, but despite knowing him for eight years, she had no idea what he sold and never actually saw him sell anything. George Payne was a plumber and glazier who had known Charles for five years. He had never heard anything negative about his character. Upon cross-examination, he admitted that, like Jane, 
He never saw Charles hawking anything. He really only knew Charles as a customer when he came into his shop for squares of glass and paint. Judge Lord Campbell summed up the case for the jury and drew attention to the corroborative evidence that the prosecution had produced. Each witness's story matched in some way to another. Charles's witnesses were not compelling, and he left it up to the jury to decide whether the corroborative testimony was sufficiently strong to enable them to rely upon the evidence of Wells. After a short deliberation, they found Charles guilty. Lord Campbell agreed with their decision and passed comment upon the fact that the crime was once a capital offence. He expressed concern that the mitigation of the punishment may have resulted in an increase in such offences. Despite his disapproval, he nevertheless passed the sentence. The law, however, still provides a grave punishment, and it becomes my duty to pronounce that penalty upon you. The sentence is that you be transported beyond the seas for the term of 14 years. When the 1851 England census was carried out on the 30th of March, Charles was still listed as a prisoner in the Hartford County Jail. He was eventually removed, and for the next year he was incarcerated on the Warrior Hulk on the Thames. It was not until the 17th of April 1852 that he boarded the ship William Jardine. On the 3rd of May, along with 211 other male convicts, he departed England for Western Australia. The William Jardine arrived at Fremantle on the 1st of August 1852 after a journey of 88 days. Disembarkation began on August 4th. Charles remained on board until the 5th when he and the rest of the prisoners were taken ashore and marched to either the 2nd or 3rd Division of the convict establishment. Upon being processed by the authorities, he was assigned as convict number 1364. While land was designated for the future Fremantle prison, the prison itself did not yet exist. Convicts, including Charles, were kept on premises at Fremantle leased from the harbour master. They spent their days quarrying stone and constructing the building that would eventually incarcerate thousands of future prisoners. For Charles, it was a life of routine and bells. Warders would signal when it was time to get up, 5am, have breakfast, 8.10am, break for lunch, 12.10pm, eat their evening meal, 6.10pm, and go to bed, 8pm. Food was rationed according to scales set at various times in the year. Charles was immediately put to work within the grounds of the prison establishment. By the 25th of October 1853, he was sent to Guildford Depot and was designated a constable. Such an appointment only came about if a convict exhibited exemplary behaviour. He was required to help warders with their duties as well as assist with discipline. His new position came with added benefits, but he was also expected to act in a certain manner. They are enjoined to exhibit an example of cheerful obedience, propriety of demeanour, cleanliness and good order to their fellow prisoners using respectful language in conveying instructions and carefully avoiding harshness or domineering assumption when in manner or language in all intercourse with them. On the 22nd of March 1854, Charles was granted a ticket of leave, which enabled him to seek his own employment. He returned to his trade 
with George Marfleet employing him as a baker in Perth. For the most part, his behaviour was considered good. He exhibited some signs of flightiness, but it was never serious. He was writing poetry again, and his lyrical verses and songs were proving popular. In October 1855, he offered his services to people who were interested. By the end of the year, he was advertising that he would be publishing a book of lyrical and other poems. On the 6th of February 1856, he announced the book had been published. Copies were available at George Marfleet's stores in Perth for the cost of half a crown. Despite such positive events, things started to go awry in April 1856. He advertised that his manuscript was taken away from him in October 1854 and that he believed it to be in the possession of some person well acquainted with its contents. He offered a reward of £2 for its recovery. On the same page, he paid for a notice to be printed in the Enquirer and Commercial News in the form of a poem. It is clear he was accusing a tall chap of spreading stories and his poem was a warning that he should stop. Something was bothering Charles, and it may have caused him to neglect his duties. On the 16th of June, 1856, Charles was arrested and sent back to the convict establishment at Fremantle. He had absconded from work and was out of his district without a pass. He was sentenced to 12 months hard labour. As per the requirement set out in the superintendent's orders book on the 26th of November, 1855, as a reconvicted prisoner, he was placed in separate confinement. Forbidden from talking to anyone, the extreme punishment was to continue for a quarter of his sentence. One can only assume that it was meant to be a deterrent for future poor behaviour once prisoners were released on a ticket of leave. Having experienced solitary confinement, perhaps officials hoped it would ensure that they would not end up there again. For Charles, it had a detrimental effect. Just over a month into his punishment, at 10.30am on the 30th of July, Charles died by suicide. He was buried the next day at 9am. Unlike other convict deaths by natural causes, there was no one officiating at his graveside. Charles Walker, the convict poet. He was another cog in the system whose ending was simply a dated entry in a book. Only a reporter from the Enquirer and Commercial News paid some kind of tribute to him. They described him as a conspicuous character who had a tendency to insanity. He had a rage for verse-making, with his poems printed in the advertising columns of their paper. They also pointed out that he had written a small volume entitled Lyrical Poems, published some six months since. Charles's story does not end with his death. The statements relating to his published works are intriguing. What became of them? There was one aforementioned attributable poem printed in the newspaper as a notice, but were there any others? Did he publish a book of poems that would have been the first of its kind in Western Australia? Searching for poetry in the newspapers is unfortunately not as easy as entering the word poem in the search box on Trove. Instead, I skimmed through every edition from 1854 to 1856, looking for the telltale format of a poem. Many I saw were reprints from the journal Punch. Two appeared to be reader-submitted works. MRB contributed two poems to the Enquirer and Commercial News in October and December 1855. 
They were printed after Charles announced on the 26th of September that he was available to create compositions. Whether or not they were his work is up for debate. We have no way of knowing whether MRB was a person's initials, and therefore not Charles, or if it stood for something else. Nevertheless, one poem offers the tantalising possibility that he was the writer. The first poem, published on the 3rd of October 1855, was called Recollections of Inkerman. It paid tribute to the British soldiers who fought at Inkerman, Ukraine, during the Crimean War. The second poem, dated the 5th of December 1855, was interestingly called The Convict. It was that poem that immediately caught my attention. It tells the story of a convict, his longing for home, and the acceptance that he will never see it again. Faced with a life in chains, the man's overwhelming desire is for freedom. That desire is only realised with his death by suicide. There are parallels between the poem and Charles's life, from the first instance of his incarceration in England in 1850, he tried to escape. In Western Australia, for a brief time, he was a model prisoner. Something changed in 1856. Something or someone was bothering him and he grew desperate to get his manuscript back. Perhaps it was that overwhelming feeling that resulted in his mistake. There were no second chances, one wrong move and he was back where he started. For Charles, mirroring the convict in the poem, it seems he felt he had no other option. Ah, who can tell what anguish reigns within that breast as he exclaims, In chains then must I die.